It's a hot summer night in Chicago in 1893, and 24-year-old James Cornish is out on the town and ready to party. He's had a long week, and he's ready to cut loose with a whiskey or two. But the night takes a turn for the worst when James finds himself in the middle of a bar fight. James gets into it with another guy at the bar. They're talking trash, throwing chairs, smashing glasses. And before James knows it, this guy pulls out a sailor's knife and he stabs James in the heart. There's no 911 call. There are no cell phones, no cars. So the best our guy can do is ride to the hospital in a horse-drawn carriage. Not ideal when you're literally bleeding from the heart. Even less ideal is what Black folks like James had to put up with in Jim Crow America. This was still during the time of segregation, so obviously you couldn't go to the all-white hospital. This is Dr. Alicia Jefferson. She's a practicing surgeon in Tennessee. Oftentimes you'd have to travel far to find facilities that would even see you. And a lot of times you were just turned around and made to go home and, you know, die in peace, for lack of a better phrase. By the time James Cornish makes it to Provident Hospital, he's lost a lot of blood. His death is almost inevitable. But here's the twist. Provident Hospital is a Black-owned hospital. Chicago's first. And that means James just might be the luckiest guy ever to get stabbed in the heart. Because the chief of surgery at this hospital is Dr. Daniel Hale Williams. He's about as experienced a doctor as you could hope to find in the middle of the night in 1893 Chicago. But even Dr. Williams knows that heart surgery is off the table. He's never heard of anyone attempting heart surgery before. But surgery is the only thing that can save James Cornish. So Dr. Daniel Hale Williams decides to try something taboo. He rolls up his sleeves, scrubs up, and gets ready to cut into a beating human heart for the first time. From something else in Sony Music Entertainment, this is They Did That, a different kind of history show. I'm Takara Small. The story of Dr. Daniel Hale-Williams and his historic heart surgery after the break. Now, before Dr. Daniel Hale-Williams was a surgeon and the hero of our story, He was just a guy named Daniel. An orphan and a bad student trying to find his life's calling. After stints as a barber and a musician, he then set his sights on medical school. But the 1800s version of medical school is uh, not like our version of medical school. Back then, the education was very, um, it was very short, it was very brief, and it wasn't as detailed as what we endure now. And when I say endure, what we go through. (laughs) I think that was a Freudian slip. (laughs) Freudian slips aside, Daniel endures three years of medical training and becomes a surgeon. He's one of just three Black doctors in the whole city. Three, folks for all of Chicago. And now Daniel's next big challenge, 
finding a hospital to actually work at. Even after the training, the next difficulty was finding a hospital or facility that would give you privileges to practice. As you can imagine, him being only one of three Black physicians in the city, his options were limited. And in fact, he had no options. So here he was completing training, having a love of medicine, and he can't actually practice medicine at all because no hospital in the city would give him privileges. But Dr. Williams wasn't going to let a silly little thing like that stop him. He said, no hospital wants me? No problem. I'll set up my own office. So he's practicing medicine at what we would describe as a storefront. Um, he called it a dispensary at the time. I think that was a term for their medical facilities. But it was basically a storefront. Storefront doctors' offices were way more common back in the day. But even then, they weren't super robust. Dr. Williams could only do limited doctory things in his little office. And his ambitions were way bigger than that. In 1890, he got an opportunity that would change the course of history and finally get him out of that dinky strip mall office. In 1890, he was approached by a reverend who had a problem. His problem was that um, there was no training programs for African-American nurses at the time. Well, of course, you know, Dr. Williams had his own issues with not being able to practice at a hospital. So they got together and they came up with a decision that they would open a facility that would serve two purposes. It would provide training for Black nurses in America, and it would also provide a place for Black physicians to practice medicine, specifically surgeons. Story goes, the Reverend's sister was trying to become a nurse, but like many at the time, couldn't find training because she was Black. Personal and family success was on the line. So the Reverend and Dr. Williams set out on a mission to create Provident Hospital. Before you could even build the hospital, you had to gain um, support from your community. And this mission was so big, it couldn't just be the Black community because there was no way that they had enough buying power or community advocates to make such a large feat actually happen. Over the next year, Dr. Williams and the good reverend went around collecting signatures and taking donations. They got all kinds of people from the community on board, including the Frederick Douglass. And in 1891, Dr. Williams opened the doors of Provident Hospital. It was a restored townhouse with only 12 hospital beds, but what it lacked in size and made up for in chutzpah. He definitely made waves by opening Provident. Provident was the first Black-owned and operated hospital in the United States, and it was also the first training program for Black nurses. Dr. Williams was an absolute trailblazer, and he was seriously making a name for himself as the man who could do the impossible. After just two years of operating his hospital, he gets the case that will cement his place in history. That's right. We're back to James Cornish and that knife wound in his heart. James needed an emergency surgery to save his life, and it was up to Dr. Williams to do it. If this was a medical drama, a la Grey's Anatomy, right now you'd be hearing. Dr. Williams, we've got a 24-year-old healthy male. Stab wound to the heart and pericardium. He's bleeding into the chest cavity. Prep it noir. Stab. His blood pressure is dropping. Hurry, dammit. We're gonna lose him. But that's not how it actually went. See, James Cornish had a big problem even bigger than the hole in his heart. Because back in 1893, the consensus in the medical community was 
You do not touch the heart. Just don't do it. Don't think about it. Now, this was a time when exploring certain portions of the body was a bit taboo and unheard of, and the heart and the chest being one of those places. So instead of prepping an OR, Dr. Williams and the nurses at Provident Hospital got James Cornish set up in a regular room, hoping that maybe he'll be okay. Seriously, that's just what people did back then. They just put you in a bed and hoped your body would figure it out on its own. But Dr. Williams was watching James slowly deteriorate. And he knew, if I don't do something now, this young man will die. So he made an executive decision to perform heart surgery on James Cornish the following morning. A surgery that, as far as he knew, was never done before. This is the part where the story gets good. Because uh, prior to this, again, there's no recorded uh, documents about someone actually successfully repairing a hole in the heart. Dr. Williams knew that the only difference between the possible and impossible is the guts to do what's taboo. So why not do one more taboo thing? Why not operate on James Cornish's heart? And Dr. Williams didn't want to just operate. He was going to invite others to watch. That's putting a lot on the line. I would imagine there was some anxiety, especially when, you know, your peers are there watching. Because in surgery, we have this thing where if there is a surgery or procedure that is rarely done, we all want to see it. We're all intrigued by it because this is all educational for us. But I will say, being a surgeon myself, I realize that when it's time to go, you have to go. So with that being said, you don't have another choice. You're going to sit here and watch the young man die, or you're going to open his chest and try to fix the problem. After the break, the surgery. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I mean, look, he was a surgeon, and surgeon through and through. I mean, he would invite people to watch him operate. This is Dr. Sandeep Johar. He's a cardiologist and writer, and he wrote a book called Heart, A History. Dr. Johar leads a heart failure department in a New York hospital. But unlike Dr. Daniel Hale Williams, he's opted out of doing surgeries. He actually remembers the first time he attempted a surgery. It was back in high school on a frog. He did it by himself in his backyard. And the experience left him, well... Completely, utterly traumatized. After witnessing the frog incident, even his mom agreed. She's like, your heart is too small for this. Meaning that you just don't have what it takes. You don't have the kind of courage to like do this. Kinda harsh, Mama Johar. But... Fair. I mean, I'm not signing up to slice into anyone anytime soon. And I even look away when they cut into people on TV. 
I mean, being a surgeon is really intense. And as Dr. Johar put it, Surgery requires a surgical mentality. Dr. Daniel Hale Williams, though, had the surgical mentality. He wasn't afraid to get in there and really open someone up. But the operation he was planning to do on James Cornish was super risky. And the reasons are pretty obvious. The heart is, first of all, always moving. It's very hard to stitch or suture something that's constantly moving. The other thing is that the heart is filled with blood. The entire blood supply of the body goes through the heart every minute. So if you have a hole and the heart's pumping, all that blood is going to be lost within about a minute. James Cornish had been stabbed in the heart. How in the world was he still alive? The truth was, Dr. Williams didn't know either. At this point in history, the heart was still kind of a medical mystery. Now, obviously, anatomists had learned some basic things about the heart by studying cadavers. So, you know, we had learned how the blood circulates. We had learned the heart has four chambers. But attempts on a living person were extremely rare. By the late 19th century, almost every organ had been operated on, even the brain, but still not the heart. Everything Dr. Williams had learned was telling him not to touch the heart. It's the seat of the soul, and it's a dangerous organ. Don't mess with it. But that's exactly what Daniel Hill Williams did in 1893. James Cornish had been rushed to the doors of Provident Hospital the night he'd been stabbed with a sailor's knife. And by the next morning... It was pretty clear he was going into shock, meaning, you know, his blood pressure was dropping. There was fluid accumulating around the heart in the pericardial sac, that membrane around the heart. There was blood accumulating there. Dr. Williams couldn't know this just by looking at James Cornish, but he had been bleeding from his heart into the pericardium. So the pericardium is the membrane around the heart, and it's always filled with a little bit of fluid so, so that the heart kind of beats without, you know, getting, you know, scuffed. But James Cornish's pericardium was filled with blood. This man was about to die. Now, Dr. Williams didn't have x-ray vision. He couldn't see what was happening in the pericardial sac. But what he could see was that James Cornish was fading. As he prepped for surgery, he realized that what he was about to attempt could be medical history. And he wanted to make sure his entire staff learned from the experience. He told any doctor who was around, yo, I'm about to cut into this man's chest. Be there or be square. And of course, they ran. Dr. Williams and his surgical team put on their white coats and scrubbed in. Meanwhile, the nurses at Provident rushed to set up an operating room. They cleaned the room, set the scalpel on its tray, and prepped the anesthesia. By the time James Cornish was wheeled into the OR, he was almost unconscious. With the patient on the operating table and 20 or more surgeons watching with bated breath, it was time for surgery. Scalpel. Scalpel. Making an incision along the chest. A local newspaper actually printed out the play-by-play. The wound was carefully opened and the walls were held apart while the surgeon dexterously removed parts of two ribs. Then deeper explorations were made, until at last the unconscious man's heart was laid bare. The pericardium's full of blood. 
Doctor, it looks like there's blood in the chest cavity. Shit. Things were not looking good. When Dr. Williams was finally able to see James Cornish's heart with his very own eyes, he realized that James should have bled out and died by now. But one thing had saved him from his untimely fate. The knife had gone through the skin, in between his ribs, past the pericardial sac, and straight through to the heart itself. The very tip of that sailor's knife had nicked the heart muscle. But that was like clotted off. A tiny blood clot had formed in the wound, blocking off the flow of blood and keeping James alive. Dr. Williams wanted to seal off the hole in James's heart, but to do it, he would have to remove the clot that had kept him from bleeding out. What he was worried about, Williams was worried about, is like, okay, if I mess with this and the clot comes out, blood is going to pour out and the guy's going to die. The injury to the heart was so small that the clot was actually working. Dr. Williams worried that trying to repair the wound would only cause further damage. He made a game-time call and decided to just leave the clot alone. But he did drain the blood out of the pericardial sac and stitch the sac back up. And then, you know, put the rib back in, bandage up the chest, and then hope for the best. Okay, so he didn't actually suture the heart itself, but he did do some pretty amazing things. He operated on the sac around the heart. He actually had the courage to cut into the chest to demystify the heart. He gave other surgeons permission to even think about doing heart surgery. Ten years after his operation on James Cornish, there were significantly more heart surgeries done all over the world. And now, 130 years later, there are two million heart surgeries done every year. But even though Dr. Williams completed the operation without issue, it was far from a guarantee that James Cornish would actually walk out of Provident Hospital alive. You know, patients postoperatively often got infections, and um, chest infections were, you know, a, a major killer. So it was every reason to think that even after the surgery that he wouldn't make it. Next up, what awaits James Cornish and Dr. Williams post-surgery? Twenty-four-year-old James Cornish was wheeled out of the Provident Hospital OR all sutured up. He made it through the night, and a month later, he was discharged, all in one piece. He even went on to live for another 20 years. Now, I'm no expert, but I'd say that's pretty good for someone who was stabbed in the heart. As for Dr. Daniel Hale Williams, well, there was no stopping our boy now. He wrote an article about the operation, thinking it was the first of its kind. But unfortunately, another doctor beat him to the punch just two years earlier. Still, Dr. Williams was getting tons of praise for founding Provident Hospital and for his famous 1893 heart surgery. He was then approached in about 1894 um, to come over and reorganize Friedman Hospital. At the time, Freedman's Hospital was about a 220-bed facility for Blacks in Washington, D.C. It had close ties to Howard University. Dr. Williams was asked to become a professor at Howard and the chief of surgery at Freedman's Hospital. A pretty big promotion for a doctor who was previously in charge of a hospital with just 12 beds. 
He quickly became known for his thoughtfulness and training, hospital organization, and one more thing. So um, back in the day, we used to call the OR the operating theater. Reason being is when surgeons first started operating, it literally was a theater. You'd see them, uh, the surgeon and the patient down on the floor, and then there were like theater seating all the way around for people to come in and watch the surgery. Dr. Williams literally took this old school theater idea and was like, I'm gonna do this at Friedman's and no one can stop me. I kid you not, every Sunday he'd perform a surgery on a real human and invite members of the public to come and watch. I think it was absolutely brilliant. There was such a big distrust for Black physicians in the community. Um, And by him opening up the doors and inviting people in, they could see not only his skill, but his compassion. And that, you know, I am one of the best, regardless of my race. Most people know Dr. Daniel Hale Williams because of his surgery on James Cornish's heart, which was objectively a huge deal. He later even became the first African-American to be inducted into the American College of Surgeons. But maybe a bigger part of Dr. Williams' legacy is everything he did for his community and the medical profession. I mean, he wasn't a guy who just wanted to rest on his laurels. He was not stagnant at all. Every every opportunity that presented itself to... um, what I think to better the the Black community, the Black physician experience and the Black nursing experience in America, if the opportunity presented itself, he took it. He seemed to have a vision for what was possible. Maybe he was a little ahead of his time, but he never let that stop him. I I can't even imagine what he envisioned, but for me, um, I took away that anything is possible. For Dr. Alicia Jefferson, To remember Dr. Daniel Hale Williams is to remember an important lesson. If it's not available, then build it. If you want to learn more about Dr. Daniel Hale Williams, check out an article Dr. Alicia Jefferson co-wrote called Daniel Hale Williams, MD, a Moses of his profession. And if you like hearing from Dr. Sandeep Johar, you can pre-order his new book, My Father's Brain, Life in the Shadow of Alzheimer's. It's got memoir, science, history, ethics, you name it, it's got it. Do you know of someone whose work was lost in history? Let us know. Our email is theydidthatatsonymusic.com. Next time on They Did That, we've got a blitz of Black inventors, entrepreneurs, and artists that deserve to have their praises sung. And we're doing it with one of my favorite activities, trivia. I'm very competitive, and I think I'm going to win. Okay, do you hear that, Ava? The trash talking has already started. Yeah, I don't know if it's making me feel more competitive or, like, resigned. No, you're feeling now the urge to win at all costs. Okay, let's go. They Did That is presented by me. Takara Small. Voiceover by India Witkin and Rob Dozier. This episode was written and produced by Ava Ahmed Begi. Our associate producer is Serena Chow. This episode was edited by Jasmine Romero. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. Engineering and sound design by Rick Kwan. Our production coordinator is Lily Hambly, and our original theme song is by Cedric Wilson. <laughs>